0: To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support buddha or visit Wisdom.com, where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more.
1: Sawadee Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our Pali Canon and English study group where we study the words of the Buddha. We're in volume 10, which is titled The Buddha's Way. We're studying chapters 31 through chapters 40 today. And in reviewing these 10 chapters, I noticed that they are a little bit longer than normal. And there's one particular chapter, chapter 40, which is a very important teaching. It's called Dependent Origination. This is the highest ultimate truth of Gautama Buddha's teachings, where he explains why the mind experiences discontentedness in a very detailed fashion. And he explains why the mind is stuck in this cycle of rebirth. And this is such an important teaching to understand, and it's the highest, most ultimate truth of the Buddhist teachings. So what I thought I would do is, even though we normally do meditation as part of this class at the beginning, I would like to not do our meditation today and just move right into actually studying the 10 chapters. So this will give us plenty of time to study each individual chapter including that last chapter, 40, which is dependent origination. Because in order to get to the first stage of enlightenment and beyond, of course, someone would need to understand this teaching of dependent origination. The Buddha talks about it as important teaching as the most ultimate truth and that it's a required teaching just to be able to get to the first stage of enlightenment. There's a lot of other teachings that you would need to learn in order to get to the first stage of enlightenment as well, but you wouldn't be able to accomplish that without those teachings in this one as well. So I'd like to be sure that we spend a good amount of time studying it. We did study it in this program in volume five, but that was quite a while ago, so that's why I would like to reserve our time to be able to study all the chapters today, including that one. So I'd like to welcome all of you, whether this is your first time joining or whether you've been joining us regularly, whether you're in Zoom, on Facebook, YouTube, on the podcast, whether you're listening to this in any of the methods that we replay. So I'd like to welcome all of you guys to our class, whether you're joining us for the first time or you've been joining us regularly welcome we're going to be going right into actually studying the individual chapters and Miranda is our moderator today, and those of you guys that are in Zoom, you can volunteer to actually read because the way that we do our class is a student will read the chapter, I will share teachings about that chapter, and then open up to any questions that you guys have on the chapter. The idea is is that you guys are studying these books prior to the class, but if you haven't studied prior to the class, it's okay because we're gonna be reading them as part of the class. But if this is your first time joining, you might decide for the future to read the chapters prior to class. That way you'll get more benefit out of the actual class. So the way that you will ask questions is you can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Miranda will see that and then be sure your question gets asked during the class. But if you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and Miranda will call on you and you can ask any questions or follow up questions directly. So I'll just go ahead and turn things over to all of you and specifically Miranda so that we can go ahead and progress through our class today.
2: To proclaim stream entry to yourself, <clears throat> householder, when the fivefold guilty dread is eliminated in the noble disciple, And he is possessed of the four limbs of stream entry, and has well seen and well penetrated the noble discipline by wisdom. He may, if he so aspires, himself proclaim thus of himself. I am one who has cut off the doom of hell, of rebirth in the womb of an animal, in the realm of afflicted spirits. Cut off is the waste, the ill-born, the downfall. A stream enterer am I, one not doomed to the downfall, assured, bound for enlightenment. Now, householder, what is the fivefold guilty dread that is eliminated in him? It is that guilty dread, householder, which he who kills causes in the same visible state as a result of his killing. <clears throat> it is that guilty dread about the life to come, which he who kills causes. Also, that discontentedness and sadness which he experiences. By abstaining from killing, he causes no guilty dread in this same visible state nor for life to come he experiences no discontentedness and sadness thus in him who abstains from killing that guilty dread is eliminated it is that guilty dread householder which he who takes what is not given causes in this same visible state as a result of his taking what is not given it is that guilty dread about the life to come which he who takes what is not given causes. Also that discontentedness and sadness, which he experiences. By abstaining from taking what is not given, he causes no guilty dread in this same visible state, nor for the life to come. He experiences no discontentedness and sadness. Thus in him who abstains from taking what is not given, that guilty dread is eliminated. It is that guilty dread, householder, which he who is a wrongdoer in sexual desires causes in this same visible state, as a result of his being a wrongdoer in sexual desires. It is that guilty dread about the life to come, which he who is a wrongdoer in sexual desires causes, also that discontentedness and sadness which he experiences. By abstaining from being a wrongdoer in sexual desires, he causes no guilty dread in this same visible state, nor for the life to come, He experiences no discontentedness and sadness. Thus in him who abstains from being a wrongdoer in sexual desires, that guilty dread is eliminated. It is that guilty dread householder, which he who tells lies causes in this same visible state as a result of his telling lies. It is that guilty dread about the life to come, which he who tells lies causes. Also that discontentedness and sadness, which which he experiences, By abstaining from telling lies, he causes no guilty dread in this same visible state, nor for the life to come, he experiences no discontentedness and sadness. Thus in him who abstains from telling lies, that guilty dread is eliminated. It is that guilty dread householder, which he who is under the influence of liquor fermented and distilled and so given to heedlessness, substances that cause heedlessness, the guilty dread, which, as a result of these things, he causes in the same visible state, also about the life to come, also that discontentedness and sadness. These are not caused by him who abstains from occasions or places, for taking liquor, fermented and distilled. Thus, in him who so abstains, that guilty dread is eliminated. These are the five guilty dreads that are eliminated. And what and of what four limbs of stream entry does he possess? Herein, householder, the noble disciple is possessed of unwavering confidence in the perfectly enlightened one, thus. The perfectly enlightened one is an arahant, perfectly enlightened, accomplished in true wisdom and conduct, fortunate, knower of the worlds, unsurpassed leader of persons to be tamed, teacher of heavenly beings and humans, the enlightened one. He is possessed of unwavering confidence in the teachings, thus. The teachings are well expounded by the Perfectly Enlightened One, directly visible, immediate, inviting one to come and see, applicable, to be personally experienced by the wise. He is possessed of unwavering confidence in the community, thus. The community of the Perfectly Enlightened One's disciples is practicing the wholesome way, practicing the straight way, practicing the true way, practicing the proper way. That is, the four pairs of persons the eight types of individuals this community of the perfectly enlightened ones disciples is worthy of gifts worthy of hospitality worthy of offerings worthy of respectful salutation the unsurpassed field of merit for the world he is possessed of the virtues moral conduct dear to the noble ones in the virtues moral conduct dear to the noble ones unbroken untorn unblemished unblotched liberating Praised by the wise, not misunderstood, and leading to concentration. These four limbs of stream entry he possesses, and what in him is the noble discipline that is well seen and well penetrated by wisdom? Herein, householder, the noble disciple thus reflects This being, that is. By the arising of this, that arises. This not being, that is not. By the ending of this, that comes to be eliminated. That is to say, because of ignorance, the volitional formations, choices and decisions. Because of the volitional formations, consciousness. Because of consciousness, name and form. Because of name and form, the six sense bases. Because of the six sense bases, contact. Because of contact, feeling. Because of feeling, craving. Because of craving, clinging. Because of clinging, existence. Because of existence, birth. Because of birth, aging and death, grief, displeasure and pain, sadness and despair come into being. Thus is the arising of this whole mass of discontentedness. But with the diminishing and complete elimination without remainder of ignorance, the ending of volitional formations. With the ending of volitional formations, the ending of consciousness. With the ending of consciousness, the ending of name and form. With the ending of name and form, the ending of the six sense bases With the end of the sense bases, the ending of contact with the ending of contact, the ending of feeling with the ending of feeling, the ending of craving with the ending of craving, the ending of clinging with the ending of clinging, the ending of existence with the ending of existence, the ending of birth, with the ending of birth aging and death, grief, displeasure and pain, sadness, and despair are eliminated to become, Thus is the ending of this whole mass of discontentedness. And this for him is the noble discipline well seen, well penetrated by wisdom. Now, householder, since for the noble disciple, these five guilty dreads are eliminated, and he is possessed of these four limbs of stream entry, and for him this noble discipline is well seen and well penetrated by wisdom, he, if he still aspires, himself may proclaim of himself, destroyed is hell for me. Destroyed is birth in the womb of an animal. Destroyed is the realm of afflicted spirits. Destroyed is rebirth in the waste, the ill born, the downfall in hell. <clears throat> A stream enterer am I, one not doomed to the downfall, one assured, bound for enlightenment.
1: All right. Thank you, Miranda. As you guys see, definitely have some longer chapter here than what we typically see in this book book series. But that's why I would like to take some extra time by not meditating and ensuring that we are able to spend time with these teachings. So I'm going to walk you guys through this one step by step. So here, the Buddha is talking about the five-fold guilty dread. What he's talking about is the five precepts, that when we aren't wise of the five precepts and we aren't practicing the five precepts, then because we're causing harm in the world, either killing, stealing, having sexual misconduct, lying, or taking substances that cause heedlessness, this is going to produce this guilt in the mind or the shame, even fear, other types of discontentedness. So he's laying this out to help you understand that he's pointing to the five precepts, but he's saying that by not practicing these, you're going to have guilt in the mind. And remember, he's not guilting, shaming, fearing you into practicing his teachings. He's not setting rules or commandments or anything like this. He's just helping you to understand why your mind experiences discontentedness. And he's explaining these natural laws of existence. By you gaining that wisdom, you can then train the mind to move it to this enlightened mental state where the mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. So when he shares his teachings, he's providing guidance to help you see various aspects of these natural laws of existence and why the mind is experiencing discontentedness. And by learning and practicing something like the five precepts, you're knocking down the harm that you're causing in the world. You're significantly reducing that so that then you're putting less harm out into the world. So less harm is coming back to you. So here, when he talks about the noble disciple, this is a student who's studied with him very closely because The Buddha used to be a prince destined to become a king. And during his lifetime, people felt that only noble people were like royalty or rich people. They were the only kind of noble people. But the Buddha kind of set this upside down on its head where he taught people that even if you were born into a poor family or a disadvantaged family, you can still be noble. It doesn't matter where you were born. That's not what determines whether you're noble or not or whether you're wise or not. What really determines whether you're noble is if you have this wisdom. It's based on your actions, based on how you function in the world. You can be a better human being by learning this wisdom and practicing in such a way that you're not causing harm to others. So he's, sharing, he's going to share that five guilty dread here based on the five precepts. And then he's going to talk about the four limbs of stream entry. Stream entry is the first stage of enlightenment. There's various teachings you need to learn and develop and train the mind in order to put together as a practice in order to get to that first stage of enlightenment. But there's these four limbs that you would need to have these four limbs in order to get to stream entry. And there's other things as well besides these four limbs. But these are like the four things that are going to propel you towards the first stage of enlightenment. And remember, there's four stages, the first, second, third, and fourth. There's the stream entry. There's once returner, non-returner, and otter hunt. The mind is actually enlightened once you get to that stage of enlightenment called otter hunt. And that's where you've eliminated all the ten fetters. The fetters are taints or pollutions of mind. In this first stage of enlightenment, you've only eliminated three of the fetters to get to this first stage. But you would need to have these four limbs or these four practices in order to get to that first stage of enlightenment. And then the Buddha is saying here, okay, you know, a person who's accomplishing this is essentially penetrated this noble discipline by wisdom. Everything's about cultivating wisdom because as you're going to hear in Dependent Origination, the number one problem that an unenlightened being is encountering is ignorance or the unknowing of true reality. The reason why the mind keeps getting angry and sad and frustrated and irritated and all these other discontent feelings is because it has craving, desire, attachment. The mind is causing itself to be discontent. But someone that has unknowing of true reality or ignorance or misunderstanding or confusion. They don't understand why their mind's experiencing something like anger or sadness because they haven't penetrated the wisdom of this noble discipline. They don't understand the Four Noble Truths. They haven't deeply seen the truth in the Four Noble Truths to understand that it's their own craving, desire, attachment that's causing discontentedness. So it's wisdom that's antidoting the ignorance. And by you antidoting the ignorance with wisdom, now your mind can now start working to eliminate craving, desire, attachment, and you can start working to eliminate anger, hatred, and ill will, and move the mind to this enlightened mental state where it's completely peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. Then this next paragraph, the Buddha is talking about That once you attain the first stage of enlightenment, if you aspire, you can proclaim of yourself as being one who has cut off the doom of hell, being born in the animal realm or being reborn into the realm of afflicted spirits. Because once somebody attains the first stage of enlightenment, their mind at that point that being even if they die in the first stage of enlightenment they're not going to be reborn into the lower realms because they've progressed to a certain point becoming a certain better human being that now the mind if they're reborn having died prior to getting to enlightenment they're going to be reborn so now when they're reborn they're going to be reborn back into the human realm they're not going to go down to the lower realm so someone who has attained the first stage of enlightenment they're done with being reborn into the lower realms of existence. They're no longer going to ever be experiencing hell, the animal realm, or the realm of afflicted spirits. It's only going to be a progression to enlightenment over the course of this life or future lives. And when he talks about proclaim of himself, He's not talking about going out on the street corner and, you know, proclaiming to other people that you're a stream enter. Or this would be arrogance or this would be conceit or pride. Instead, what he's basically saying is you can know for yourself that if you get to the first stage of enlightenment, a stream enter, that you're done with the lower realms of existence. You've cut this off, that you now have made this big step forward into the first stage of enlightenment. And your mind won't regress backwards from there. In that first stage of enlightenment, you'll have this significant diminishing of discontentedness and things will be much more peaceful than they were when you were off this path struggling to understand the natural laws of existence. But as you get to that first stage of enlightenment, you'll see this diminishing of discontentedness, but you're still going to be experiencing discontentedness because there's still pollution in the mind but you're at least done with the lower realms of existence and you've at least diminished discontentedness to a certain degree. Now the goal is to continue to apply dedication, diligence, and effort to move the mind into the second, third, and ultimately the fourth stage of enlightenment where the mind is enlightened and it's no longer experiencing any discontentedness whatsoever. So he's not suggesting you go out on the street corner and proclaim to others that you are in the first stage of enlightenment, and even telling your life partner or your children or other people, there's no need to tell anybody. This is your practice, your own independent journey to enlightenment. And one of the things you need to do in order to get to enlightenment is eliminate conceit and eliminate arrogance, and eliminate pride. So if you're going around as a stream enterer telling everyone that you're a stream enter, then you've still got conceit, of course. And in order for you to get to the fourth stage of enlightenment, where the mind's actually enlightened, you need to stop telling people all of that because it's just arrogance and pride and people are going to turn away from it. So now the Buddha talks about the five precepts, but he talks about them not with the illuminating language that he uses in the five precepts, where tomorrow Miranda is going to be sharing in our group learning program the five precepts and if you haven't studied those with the words of the Buddha or even if you have it would be really wise to attend that class right here in the same place in zoom we're not going to be live streaming that tomorrow but here in zoom you can learn the details of the words of the Buddha around the five precepts here he's just basically connecting the five precepts and showing you how you're going to be experiencing this guilty dread. And if you've ever done any of these things where you have killed or you have stolen or you have had sexual misconduct or you have... Had lies, or you have taking substances that cause heedlessness. You know what this is like. So this is where you don't believe the Buddhist teachings, but you learn them, you reflect on them, and you practice and see the truth for yourself. And you know that if you've ever done these things, you've experienced guilty dread as part of your actions of killing, stealing, having sexual misconduct, lying, and taking substances that cause heedlessness. And what the Buddha is sharing with you here is by eliminating this conduct where you're no longer doing these things and others, of course, then you'll eliminate the discontentedness. You eliminate this guilty dread. So he's saying here that the sadness and discontentedness that is experienced because of these things will actually be eliminated, that you'll no longer experience discontentedness and sadness because you've eliminated the actions that are causing these difficulties in the mind. So he talks about those five precepts there. Then he talks about the four limbs of stream entry. These are that you have confidence in the Buddha, you have confidence in the teachings, you have confidence in the community, and that you have this moral conduct or these virtues, this wholesome moral conduct. The way that you develop this confidence in the buddha the teachings in the community is through learning reflecting and practicing the teachings this isn't about blind faith or blind belief the buddha's teachings are to be examined to investigate to study because with that learning then you reflect on them and independently verify them for yourself and then as you practice them you start observing that the condition of the mind is gradually improving so if you're just learning the buddhist teachings for the first time or you're just getting started or you haven't penetrated the buddhist teachings deeply enough that you have doubt that's normal that's very normal for somebody as they're progressing and I say that that can be actually healthy that if someone has some healthy skepticism and they're like you know what I don't know if the buddhist teachings are the truth or not let me dig into this let me roll up the sleeves let me dig into this and see if his teachings are true or not come examine them come investigate them even the buddha said this come examine my teachings right so if you have doubt right now it's okay but the way that you eliminate that is not through blind belief or blind faith instead you investigate the teachings and as you investigate them learning them and practicing them you'll see the condition of the mind gradually improve so that's where you'll build and develop this unwavering confidence in the perfectly enlightened one that you will know with a hundred percent certainty my goodness This man taught over 2,500 years ago, and here we are learning his teachings today, and we can see the truth in his teachings, how true they really are. And by learning and practicing them, we can see the condition of our mind improve where discontentedness is gradually diminishing. My goodness, this person was surely a fully, perfectly enlightened Buddha because his teachings are timeless. They can apply back when he was alive, and they apply today as well. And then that helps you to build your unwavering confidence in the actual teachings because you see them improving the condition of the mind. And then you gain this unwavering confidence in the community because if you've learned in a certain community through a certain teacher with certain resources and all of us are contributing to support the development of these books and these classes and people are moderating, people are donating funds to hold retreats and people are sponsoring me and supporting me and all these different things that our community brings together in order to have this community and you are part of this community and you observe that through learning the teachings within this community the condition of your mind is gradually improving you will have unwavering confidence in this community because you know that it's this community that is helping to benefit your mind of course you're the one who's doing all the work you're on this independent journey to improve the condition of the mind but it's this community that you've found these resources and people are willing to contribute to developing and cultivating and nurturing this community so that this community can flourish and slowly but surely If you have any doubt about this community, that will gradually diminish as you observe that through learning the teachings here and practicing them, that the condition of the mind is gradually improving. And then by you cleaning up your moral conduct, which is what the Buddha was talking about with the five precepts and other things like right intention, right speech, right action, and so forth, right livelihood. By you cleaning up your moral conduct and causing less harm in the world, then less harm is coming back to you. So in that situation, by you cleaning up your conduct through learning the wisdom of the Buddhist teachings, you will then have the four limbs that are going to lead to stream entry. And of course, you need to learn the three universal truths, the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the Five Precepts, the brahma the Ten Fetters, the extensive meditation training, all of these other things that you need to learn. But by cleaning up your moral conduct, this is an important aspect of getting to that first stage of enlightenment. And when the Buddha used to teach students, brand new students, the first thing he would teach them is the moral conduct. Because as long as you're killing or stealing or having sexual misconduct or lying or taking substances that cause heedlessness, you're actually working against yourself. Because as long as we're polluting the mind with something like substances, for example, How could we ever purify the mind and get to this better, improved condition of mind where the mind's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy if we're polluting the body and the mind with like a substance? Or if we're out there causing harm by killing or stealing or having sexual misconduct or lying, it's going to be very difficult to get to peacefulness. You wouldn't be able to get to peacefulness as long as you're doing those things. So it's the moral conduct which is one of those important limbs to get to the first stage of enlightenment. Now the Buddha starts talking about this wisdom of dependent origination. That's what he's starting to go into. But chapter 40, he explains dependent origination in detail. And that's what we're gonna spend a portion of our time in today's class with. What he's saying here is he's kind of setting up dependent origination where he's saying, by arising of this, that arises. This not being, that is not. By the ending of this, that comes to be eliminated. What he's showing is the cause and effect. This is the natural law of gamma, of cause and effect, or action and result. This is the whole basis of the natural law of gamma and all the teachings that the Buddha shares, particularly this ultimate truth of dependent origination. So he's setting that up for you by helping you see that when you have this thing, then this occurs. This isn't dependent origination, but let me just give you an example that you can understand. When somebody's polite, that's the cause. The effect is you enjoy being around them. When someone's harsh and aggressive, you don't enjoy being around them, right? That's the, the cause and effect. By you choosing to be polite, kind, friendly, and respectful, you'll see that people will be more interested to spend time with you and your personal and professional relationships will blossom. In situations where you've been impolite, unkind, unfriendly, and disrespectful, you had unwholesome results because of that. People weren't interested in being around you. So this is cause and effect or action and result. So he's setting that up here by explaining that to you, that by this arising, that arises. By this not being there, by this being eliminated, then this will not occur. So now he's going to go into talking about dependent origination. He's saying, okay, because of ignorance or the unknowing of true reality, then there's going to be these volitional formations or these choices and decisions that are coming from ignorance or this unknowing of true reality. And because there's these choices and decisions that are based in this ignorance or unknowing of true reality, there's this consciousness or this mind that is polluted with this ignorance. Because of that, then there's what's called name and form. There's this birth of this physical body that comes into being. Name and form is essentially the physical body. There's consciousness as well. You'll see in chapter 40, where he explains each one of these. Because of this physical body, there's gonna be these sense bases. This is the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind, these six sense bases. The mind is longing and yearning for pleasant feelings through these sense spaces. But these sense spaces come into existence because of someone being reborn. And then when there's these six sense bases, then we want contact through these six sense bases. We want these pleasant feelings through these sense spaces. The unenlighted mind is chasing these pleasant feelings through contact of the six sense bases, And then when you experience that, Then the mind has this craving, where now the mind is starting to crave and yearn and long, wanting these feelings to be permanent. And then because of the craving or the longing and yearning, now there's this clinging, where there's this holding on, and the mind wants to hold on to things permanently. And because of this, there is then existence. There's continued existence. Existence leads to birth. And because we're born, we then experience this aging and death because of being in this existence as a human being. And now as a human being, having craving, desire, attachment, this mental longing, essentially having this ignorance that we haven't eliminated the craving, desire, attachment yet, then there's going to be this grief, displeasure, pain, sadness, despair. This is where all the discontentedness is coming from. This is this whole mass of discontentedness is arising because of ignorance, the unknowing of true reality. So the Buddha is going in a 12-step process and showing you that all your discontentedness is going back to ignorance. He's showing you that birth, and the reason why we experience birth, aging, and death, is all because of ignorance and the unknowing of true reality. And that's why his teachings, the primary thing that a practitioner is doing is cultivating wisdom. By cultivating wisdom, not believing the teachings, but instead independently verifying the teachings and cultivating that wisdom and training the mind, you're eradicating ignorance. And by eradicating ignorance, you then will make wise decisions instead of decisions through ignorance. And now you'll unravel this whole sequence of events That is going from ignorance to decisions to this consciousness or this mind and so forth and so on. You will unravel all of this, getting to the point where discontentedness no longer exists because you've eliminated the conditions that are causing the discontentedness. So that's where he's saying this not being that is not by ending this that comes to be eliminated. So by eliminating ignorance or ending ignorance, discontentedness is eliminated. That's how you eliminate discontentedness is, yes, it's craving, desire, attachment that's causing discontentedness. But the only reason why craving, desire, attachment exists is because of the ignorance, the unknowing of true reality. But when you gain the wisdom to understand that it's craving, desire, attachment that's causing the discontentedness. Now you're interested and you gain this wisdom by learning these teachings to now eradicate and eliminate all the other things that are producing this discontentedness. But it's ignorance, which is the top line that is causing the discontentedness. So that's why here the Buddha says, okay, diminishing and complete elimination without remainder of ignorance comes the ending of these volitional formations that are unwise, decisions that are unwise, and it unravels this whole thing. And then this is where he says, okay, thus is the ending of this whole mass of discontentedness, because you unravel this whole sequence of events by cultivating wisdom. Wisdom is the exact opposite of ignorance. And then part of that is to cultivate these five precepts so that you no longer are experiencing this guilty dread and having and possessing these four limbs of stream entry. By having confidence in the Buddha, confidence in his teachings, confidence in the community, and having virtuous moral conduct, you're possessing the four limbs to be able to get to this first stage of enlightenment. Because you've now seen, you've had this seeing, this clarity of the teachings, and you've penetrated them well by wisdom. That's the investigation and the reflection and the practice of them. And then once you get to that first stage of enlightenment, the Buddha is just reiterating here that you will no longer be reborn down into the lower realms. What questions do you guys have on this teaching?
2: Um, So towards the beginning of this, where it says that we can proclaim to ourselves that we are a stream enterer, Is this different than allowing the mind to believe
1: that it's attained enlightenment? Yeah, so the Buddha explains how when someone has attained stream entry, you will know that for yourself. Same thing when you get to enlightenment. You will know that your mind is enlightened, and you will know that. You will have the wisdom that it has because you will know that you're no longer experiencing discontentedness for one to two or three years. But it's very different of trying to convince yourself that you have attained enlightenment or trying to convince other people. But this is kind of like what he's saying here when he's saying proclaiming of himself. It's just knowing for yourself that you've attained the first stage of enlightenment. Or other places of teachings he talks about knowing for yourself that you've attained enlightenment. The reason why you know that is because you know what enlightenment is. You've been on this active path for however many years And to bring the teachings into focus to the point where you know your mind is enlightened, you would have had to have done a whole lot of things in order to accomplish that. So if you know that the mind is enlightened because you're not experiencing discontentedness or you know the mind is instrumentary because of all the teachings that he shares to help you understand that, it's one thing to know it. It's another thing to convince the mind of it which then the mind can become complacent or arrogant or prideful, having that ego in there. So it's more about knowing versus convincing the mind that you are enlightened or that you are a stream enterer.
2: Yes, thank you, sir. You're welcome. Uh, Marcy has her hand raised.
3: Let's go to her. Thank you, Miranda. Thank you, Teacher David. So my question to you, Teacher David, is that um, when someone has uh, become a stream enterer and say for whatever reason, they passed before reaching enlightenment, they obviously will be reborn into the human realm. And at that moment in time, when they're reborn into the human realm, they will have to kind of refine the path and all the learnings over again. But my question is, is like, um, how do I say this? Uh, in learning and having to relearn that all over again, what what is it that helps them perpetuate to get to that stream entering level again, if that makes sense? Like I don't know um I don't know if I'm asking my question clear enough.
1: Yeah, it's very clear. So from one life to the next, when there's rebirth, craving, desire, attachment moves from one mind to the next, as well as residual memories moves from one life to the next. This is why some people observe their past lives is because they have residual memories from those past lives that have been carried forward into the new mind. Well, the same thing is that if you're learning the teachings in one life and you've gotten to stream entry, there's certain wisdom that you've cultivated and those residual memories will move forward into the new life. So even though you're starting off as a brand new being, you're a baby, just like you need to learn how to talk and walk and read and write and all these other things. You have to learn those over and over again for each individual birth. You still need to learn the Buddhist teachings again, but it's going to be easier for you because you've done it in a previous life and there's residual memories there from that previous life when you were learning and practicing these teachings. So if you find these teachings to be really easy and really straightforward, not necessarily easy, but straightforward to learn and they just make sense to you, there's a good chance that you actually studied these teachings in a prior life. And conversely, if you find it quite a struggle to learn and practice these teachings, particularly you know when you first get started most people do have a little bit of a struggle but if you're still struggling after a year or two or three and it's still a real struggle for you you most likely didn't study these teachings in a previous life no big deal you know it's all in the past you're not a bad person you're putting in the effort to learn now but that's how it actually occurs is that there's these residual memories that move from one life to the next and the way that i describe it is like a cardboard box Is that the cardboard box are two separate cardboard boxes, but the contents in cardboard box A, upon the death of that cardboard box, the contents of craving and the residual memories are moved into this new mind. And then now with those residual memories, you will find that it's less effort to learn and practice in this new life.
3: Thank you so much, teacher. So I so I understand it's my it's the it would be the residual memories that would help perpetuate the path a little bit easier in the next rebirth.
1: Exactly. And you're still gonna have to learn, but it'll just be so much easier for you in that next life.
3: Thank you so much.
1: Appreciate mm-hmm. it. You're welcome.
2: It does not appear we have any more questions on this chapter, sir.
1: All right. So we go to chapter thirty-two.
2: Yes, sir. let's go to Jan to read chapter 32. Thank you, Miranda.
4: Three kinds of wonders. There are three kinds of wonders, Kavada, which I, having myself understood and realized them, have made known to others. And what are the three? The mystic wonder, the wonder of mind reading, and the wonder of instruction. And what, Kavada, is the mystic wonder? In this case, Kavada, supposing that a brother enjoys the possession in various ways of mystic power. From being one, he becomes multiform. From being multiform, he becomes one. From being visible, he becomes invisible. He passes without hindrance to the further side of a wall or a battlement or a mountain. As if through air, he penetrates up and down through solid ground, as if through water, he walks on water without dividing it, as if on solid ground. He travels cross-legged through the sky, like the birds on wings. He touches and feels with the hand, even the moon and the sun. Beings of mystic power and potency, though they may be, he reaches, even in the body, up to the heavenly realm. And some believer of trusting heart should behold him doing so then that believer should announce the fact to an unbeliever saying wonderful sir and marvelous is the mystic power and potency of that aesthetic. Then that unbeliever should say to him, well, sir, there is a certain charm called the Gandhara charm. It is by his own ability that he performs all this. Now what think you Kavada might not the unbeliever so say, yes, sir, he might. Well Kavada, It is because I perceive danger in the practice of mystic wonders that I disagree and refrain from and am reluctant to perform. And what, Kavada, is the wonder of mind reading? Suppose in this case, Kavada, that a brother can make known the heart and the feelings, the reasoning, and the thoughts of other beings, of other individuals, saying, so-and-so is in your mind. You are thinking of such and such a matter. Thus and thus are your emotions. And some believer of trusting heart should see him doing so. Then that believer should announce the fact to an unbeliever, saying, wonderful, sir, and marvelous is the mystic power and potency of that aesthetic. Then that unbeliever should say to him, well, sir, there is a charm called the jewel charm. It is by his own ability that he performs all this. Now what think you, Kavada? Might not the unbeliever say so? Yes, sir, he might. Well, Kavada, it is because I perceive danger in the practice of the wonder of mind reading that I disagree and refrain from and am reluctant to perform. And what Kavada is the wonder of instruction? Suppose, Kavada, that a brother teaches thus, reason in this way, do not reason in that way. Consider thus and not thus. Get rid of this disposition, train yourself, and remain in that. This Kavada is what is called the wonder of instruction. And further Kavada, suppose that a Tathagata is born into the world, one who has won the truth, an Arahant, a fully awakened one, abounding in wisdom and goodness, joyful, who knows all worlds, unsurpassed as a guide to humans willing to be led, a teacher for gods and humans, a perfectly enlightened one, a Buddha, he by himself, thoroughly knows and sees, as it were, face to face, this universe, including the worlds above of the gods, the Brahmas and the Maras, and the world below with its ascetics and Brahmins, its princes and people. And having known it, he makes his wisdom known to others. The truth, lovely in its origin, lovely in its progress, lovely in its completion, does he proclaim both in the spirit and in the letter. The higher life does he make known in all its fullness and in all its purity a householder or one of his children or a man of inferior birth in any class listens to that truth and on hearing it he has confidence in the Tathagata, the one who has found the truth and when he is possessed of that confidence he considers thus within himself full of hindrances his household life a path for the dust of passion Free as the air is the life of him who has renounced all worldly goods, worldly things. How difficult is it for the man who dwells at home to live the higher life in all its fullness, in all its purity, in all its bright perfection. Let me then cut off my hair and beard. Let me clothe myself in the orange colored robes and let me go forth from the household life into the homeless life. Then before long, renouncing his portion of wealth be it great or small, leaving behind his circle of relatives, be they many or be they few, he cuts off his hair and beard. He clothes himself in the orange colored robes, and he goes forth from the household life into the homeless life. When he has thus become an ascetic, he lives unrestrained by that restraint that should be binding on an ascetic. Uprightness is his delight, and he sees danger in the least of those things he should avoid. He adopts and trains himself in the precepts. He encompasses himself with wholesome deeds in action and speech. Pure are his means of livelihood. Wholesome is his conduct. Guarded the door of his senses. Mindful and self-possessed, he is altogether joyful. And how, Kavada, is his conduct wholesome? In this, Kavada, that the monk, putting away the killing of living beings, abandoning the destruction of life, The stick and the sword he has laid aside, and reluctant to roughness, and full of mercy, he resides compassionate and kind to all creatures that have life. Kavada, this is called the wonder of instruction. With his mind thus serene, made pure, translucent, cultured, free of evil, flexible, ready to act, firm and imperturbable, unable to be upset or excited, calm, serene. He directs and bends down his mind to the wisdom of the destruction of the deadly floods. He knows as it really is. This is discontentedness. He knows as it really is. This is the cause of discontentedness. He knows as it really is. This is the elimination of discontentedness. He knows as it really is. This is the path that leads to the elimination of discontentedness. He knows as they really are, these are the deadly floods. He knows as it really is. This is the cause of the deadly floods. He knows as it really is. This is the elimination of the deadly floods. He knows as it really is. This is the path that leads to the elimination of the deadly floods. To him, thus knowing, thus seal seeing, the mind is set free from the deadly poison of craving is set free from deadly poison of anger, is set free from the deadly poison of ignorance, annoying of true reality. In him, thus set free, there arises the knowledge of his liberation, and he knows rebirth has been destroyed. The holy life has been fulfilled. What has to be done, had to be done, has been accomplished. After this present life, there will be no beyond. Just Kavada, as if a mountain fastness, in a mountain fastness there were a pool of water, clear, translucent, and serene, and a man standing on the bank and with eyes to see should perceive the oysters and the shells, the gravels and the pebbles and the shoals of fish as they move about or lie within it, he would know. This pool is clear, transparent, and serene, and there within it are the oysters and the shells, the sand and gravel, and the shoals of fish are moving about or lying still. This Kavada is what is called the wonder of instruction. So these Kavada are the three kinds of wonders I have understood and realized myself and made known to others.
1: All right, thank you, Jan. As you guys see here, these chapters are much longer than we're normally studying, but this is great because you can see the real depth of the Buddha's teachings. Here, he's sharing these three kinds of wonders. And essentially what he's basically sharing is that he doesn't actually practice these first two although he's aware of them and he knows that they exist because he experienced them for himself he's actually practicing this wonder this wonder of instruction and instructing people he sees that to be the most important so here this mystic wonder I've never observed this but the Buddha must have observed it during his life or else he wouldn't have taught it, is that the ability of somebody to basically appear and reappear. That's what he's talking about here. This next one I have observed uh, for myself is the ability to read the minds of other people. This is something that you may encounter as you awaken to enlightenment. You might start having the ability to read uh, the mind of other people. And You shouldn't cling to that. You shouldn't hold on to that. You shouldn't try to make money with that. Or you shouldn't try to have pride or arrogance or things like this because of that. But as your mind becomes less and less burdened and eliminate pollution of mind, you may experience the ability to actually read people's minds. But this isn't the purpose of this path. The purpose of this path is to get to liberation, to peace, to enlightenment, where the mind is no longer experiencing discontentedness, but just know along the way you might get to the point where you can read other people's minds, and you know things that you're not really, you know, intended to know. And you—that's why the moral conduct is so important. That you practice that, where you're not sharing things with people, and you're not using it for financial gain. And the Buddha is saying, you know, he's choosing not to practice this. He's saying that he disagrees, and he's reluctant to actually perform this, even though. He knew it was possible. And even though he probably experienced that for a certain period of time as he was awakening, he no longer performs that because he knows that it's not helpful necessarily. But this wonder of instruction, this is like another way to talk about this, is like a miracle of instruction, right? Being able to know these teachings as a Tathagata or as a Buddha. A Buddha or a Tathagata is going to know these teachings inside and out, backwards, forwards. Their wisdom is going to be very deep, very profound. And they're going to be able to provide guidance to people in ways that others can't. And that's a real wonder. That's what the Buddha is actually practicing. Because by sharing these teachings into the world, and specifically, he starts talking about the Four Noble Truths, because everything really comes back to the Four Noble Truths in one way or another that's what he's really practicing is this wonder of instruction so what questions do you guys have on this particular chapter
2: um it does not appear there are any questions at this time sir
1: all right so let's move on to chapter 33
2: one who is near to nibbana, enlightened monks possessed of four qualities a man is incapable of falling away He is near to Nibbana, enlightenment. What are the four? Herein, a monk is perfect in virtue, practicing moral conduct. He is guarded as to the doors of the sense bases. He is moderate in eating. He is devoted to watchfulness. And in what way is a monk perfect in virtue? Herein, a monk is virtuous. He resides restrained with the restraint of the training guidelines perfect in the practice of right moral conduct, he sees danger in the slightest faults. He takes up and tra- trains himself in the stages of training. Thus a monk is perfect in virtue. And how is a monk guarded as to the doors of the sense spaces? Herein a monk, seeing a form with the eye, does not grasp at the general features or at the details. Since craving and aversion, evil, unprofitable states might flow in upon one who resides with the sense bases of the eye uncontrolled, he applies himself to such control. He sets a guard over the sense base of the eye and he get, attains control. When he hears a sound with the ear or with the nose smells an odor or with the tongue tastes a flavor or with the body touches a physical object, when the mind, when with the mind he recognizes a mental object He does not grasp at the general features or details. But since craving and aversion, evil, unprofitable states, might flow in upon one who resides with the sense-space of the eye uncontrolled, he applies himself to such control. He sets a guard over the sense-space of the ear, nose, tongue, body, and mind, and attains control. That is how a monk has the doors of the sense-spaces guarded. And how is a monk moderate in eating? Herein, a monk takes his food thoughtfully and carefully, not for sport, not for indulgence, not for personal charm or adornment, but just enough for the support for the continuance of the body, for its resting unharmed, to help the living of the holy life with this thought, my former feeling I check and I set going no new feeling. Thus maintenance shall be mine, blamelessness and comfort in life. Thus a monk is moderate in eating. And how is a monk devoted to watchfulness? By day, a monk walks up and down and then sits, thus purifying the mind of of obstructive states. By night for the first watch, he does likewise. In the middle watch of the night, lying on his right side, he takes up the lion posture, resting one foot on the other and thus collected and composed, fixes his thoughts on rising up again. In the last watch of the night, at early dawn, he walks up and down, then sits, and so purifies the mind of obstructive states. That is how a monk is devoted to watchfulness. Possessed of these four qualities, a monk is incapable of falling away. He is near to nibbana, enlightenment.
1: Thank you, Miranda. So the Buddha here is talking about four qualities that show that the being is close to enlightenment and he discusses other qualities as well at other parts of his teachings but here he's talking about practicing moral conduct guarding the doors to the sense spaces eating in moderation and being devoted to watchfulness i think that all the buddhist teachings are very clear and completely straightforward But even with that, I will typically go through and teach each individual aspect of his teachings. But given the amount of content that we have to share in today's class, with this particular teaching, I'm just going to open up to any questions that you guys might have rather than go through this, because I think that this one is really quite clear, as are all the other teachings. But I would like to just give you guys a chance to ask any questions that you might have on this one.
2: Yes, sir. The only one that's sort of unclear to me is how can we today be devoted to watchfulness? Because we don't get up three times during the night, most of us anyways. Mm -hmm. Um, So how is this possible for us in today's way of living, sir?
1: Sure. What the Buddha is actually talking about here is you know that when you're dozing off to sleep, where your mind is not quite alert, but it's not quite asleep either, there can be thoughts that kind of come up during that time. There can be unwholesome thoughts, evil thoughts. And what the Buddha is talking about here is what, being watchful over that. The same thing happens when you're waking up, where you're not quite awake, but you're not quite asleep. You're just kind of sitting there stretching, you know, just kind of regaining your consciousness. Same thing. So as you're dozing off and as you're waking up, you still need to be watchful over the mind. Because that's a time where the mind can really implode on itself you know this is one of the reasons why we oftentimes have difficulty sleeping in the unenlightened state because as we're dozing off our mind is just ruminating with all these problems and all these difficulties or evil thoughts about people in our day so you should watch over the mind during that time and ensure that even in that situation where your mind's not quite awake it's not quite asleep if you see an evil thought come to mind cut it off and let it go
2: Yes, thank you, sir. Mm-hmm. Um, Marcy has her hand raised. Let's go to her, sir.
3: Thank you, Miranda. Thank you, Teacher David. Um, Miranda, thank you for asking that question about watchfulness. I, I, I too myself was questioning that, but great clarity. Um, teacher David, with the guarding of the said spaces, and this may be something that maybe I might have to speak to you privately about. But I'm when it, when it speaks about control and applying control. I I feel that sometimes I'm not sure how to to apply control, and I didn't know if there was, like, nothing in this is a quick fix, but if there was something that maybe you could give me to help me maybe attain that control a little bit more or be able to uh, apply it.
1: Sure. The way that you can think about controlling the mind is restraining the mind because whenever he's talking about the sense bases, it's always craving, desire, attachment through the sense bases that are causing the discontentedness. So the way to gain control over this is to restrain the mind. So where you see the mind lurching forward through the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, wanting bodily contact or something in the mind, you restrain it, much like a horse. If you've ever ridden a horse and you've pulled the reins back on a horse, it's the same thing that you're doing with the mind. The way that you get better at that is through developing your breathing mindfulness meditation practice. Because with breathing mindfulness meditation, you're developing more mindfulness or awareness of mind. You're developing concentration, focusing on a single object, which is the breath. And when the mind moves off the breath, you're cutting it off and letting it go. And now this is going to help you restrain the mind in daily life. So. If you're not quite observing that you can do that in daily life, it's just because you haven't accumulated enough benefits of the meditation and you maybe haven't just been doing it long enough. You just need to keep doing it each day, two to three sessions per day, 30 minutes or more. And the other reason why you you might not be able to restrain the mind in certain situations is because the craving is just so strong and so powerful that there hasn't been enough work done on the mind. Again, there hasn't been enough accumulation of benefits. So as you meditate for extended periods of time you know year two years three years four years the mind will get better and better of observing with mindfulness having concentration and being able to let go and then in daily life as craving is arising and you observe the bodily sensations associated with discontentedness arising and there again you're cutting it off and letting it go that is going to gradually help the mind to now you can control it so just to follow
3: up so TJ, I am meditating three times a day, and it's approximately around 30 minutes, but I am finding myself, when I do find these cravings coming at me, and I'm feeling them, I actually kind of remove myself and, and and go into a meditation to try to appease that. Is that something, is that a good tool to try to do, or do I need to not, or do I need to stay aware and conscious in the moment and do that restraining, or is falling back on trying to, into meditating better like i or should i need to increase the amount of time that i am meditating or frequency
1: what you're describing is actually the same thing and is perfect the buddha describes how that breathing mindfulness meditation will eliminate any evil unwholesome qualities of mind on the spot so if you're observing craving arising and you go into meditation right away you are restraining the mind and you're using meditation to help you do that that's exactly what the buddha would have taught you to do and then as you do that more, accumulate more benefits, you won't have to do that as much because you'll be able to just observe the craving coming and cut it off without even going into meditation, but you have to accumulate the benefits. So that's perfect what you're actually doing. All
3: right, so, so okay, that's, that's. thank you, I appreciate that. I felt like I was just doing it all the time mm-hmm. and it was kinda, I was like, am I wearing this out? But I appreciate that, thank you. Mm-hmm.
2: It does not appear we have any more questions at this time, sir.
1: All right. So now chapter 34.
4: Yes, sir. Let's go to Jan to read chapter 34. Thank you, Miranda. The supreme development of the sense bases. Now, Ananda, how is there the supreme development of the sense basis in the Noble Ones dis- discipline? Here, Ananda. When a monk sees a form with the eye, there arises in him what is agreeable, there arises what is disagreeable, there arises what is both agreeable and disagreeable. He understands thus. What has arisen in me, what is agreeable, there has arisen what is disagreeable, there has arisen what is both agreeable and disagreeable, but that it's conditioned, clear, dependently arisen. This is peaceful. This is superb, that is, equanimity. The agreeable that arose, the disagreeable that arose, and both the both agreeable and disagreeable that arose are eliminated in him, and equanimity is established. Just as a man with good sight, having opened his eyes, might shut them, or having shut his eyes might open them, so too concerning anything at all, the agreeable that arose the disagreeable that arose, and the both agreeable and disagreeable that arose are eliminated just as quickly, just as rapidly, just as easily, and equanimity is established. This is called in the noble one's discipline, the supreme development of the sense basis regarding the forms recognizable by the eye. Similar discourses were spoken in the case of hearing a sound with the ear, smelling an odor with the nose, Tasting a flavor with the tongue, touching a physical object with the body, recognizing a mental object with the mind, though with different analogy as the following sound, just as a strong man might easily snap his fingers, odor, just as raindrops on a slightly sloping ro- lotus leaf roll off, flavor, just as a strong man might easily spit out a ball of spit collected on the tip of his tongue. Physical objects, just as a strong man might extend his flexed arm or flex his extended arm. Mental objects, just as if a man were to let two or three drops of water fall onto an iron plate heated for a whole day, they would quickly vaporize and vanish.
1: All right. Thank you, Jan. So here the Buddha is talking about how once you develop the sense spaces really well and you do what he was talking about in the previous chapter of restraining the mind, you will eventually get to the point where there no longer is this agreeable and disagreeable contact. In the unenlightened mind, if there's something agreeable that is experienced through the six sense bases, you will have pleasant feelings. In the unenlightened mind where there's disagreeable contact through the six sense spaces, you will have painful feelings. But as you progress to enlightenment, and by the way, the Buddha is explaining that right here, what the Buddha explains is that, okay, by the time you get to enlightenment, essentially, he's saying that there's no such thing as agreeable or disagreeable contact. It's just all impermanence. So in the past, when you heard beautiful music that you like, it's like, oh, that sounds so great, man. That's my jam, that's my music, right? And you're all feeling good about that. You get all these pleasant feelings. But then when you hear some music that you don't like, you're, oh man, why is he playing that? It's too loud. I don't like that. Uh, right? The mind's discontent because there's this agreeable and disagreeable contact through the ears, for example. Well, when you eventually train the mind enough and you no longer have this agreeable or disagreeable in the mind because there's no more craving there, when there's craving desire attachment and you're longing for pleasant feelings, then there's going to be agreeable Things that you want, and then there's going to be disagreeable things that you don't want. But when you eliminate the craving, desire, attachments from the mind through practicing all the teachings that the Buddha shares, then there's no longer agreeable and disagreeable. It's just a whole bunch of things that are happening, and they're all impermanent, and your mind can be completely peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy no matter what's happening around you. That's essentially what he's getting to here, where he says equanimity is established equanimity is calmness and composure evenness of temper especially in difficult situations so that's what essentially is going to occur as you train with all the other steps of the eightfold path and all the other things that i share with you as part of the buddhist teachings you will start to observe how you don't agree with this you don't disagree with it it's just it's just food and you're just eating this food and you notice that it doesn't maybe taste the same as other food that you have, but you're willing to eat that food because you're just sustaining the body. And then you eat some other food and it's like, oh, wow, this is like really tasty. But you're not seeing this as agreeable or disagreeable. It's just different. And you can be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy no matter what you eat. You can just eat it just to sustain the body. If the mind's craving for permanent flavors Then when you get those flavors, this agreeable flavor, then the mind's going to have pleasant feelings. But then when you eat something that is disagreeable, you're going to have these painful feelings. But when that diminishes and you eliminate that, it's just food. It's just a substance. And there's just impermanence. They just taste different. It's not agreeable or disagreeable or pleasant feelings and painful feelings. It's just always peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy in the mind. And you're just ingesting the substance, for example to sustain the health of the body, and that's the way you'll see it, and that's the way you'll think about it, rather than having craving, desire, attachment. What questions do you guys have on this chapter?
2: Uh, it does not appear there are any questions at this time, sir.
1: All right. so now we'll 35.
2: Need not to know how much fetters were worn away. Monks, just as a carpenter or a carpenter's apprentice, inspecting the handle of his axe sees thereon the marks of his fingers and thumb. Noer knows how much of the ad's handle was worn away that day, nor the previous day, nor at any time. Yet knows just when the wearing away has reached the end of wearing away. Even so, monks, a monk a intent upon making, become known not to what extent the fetters were worn away that day, nor the previous day, nor at any time. Yet knows just when the wearing away has reached the end of wearing away.
1: All right. Thank you, Miranda. So here, this ats, or however it's pronounced, I don't even know how to pronounce it. It's basically a long handle with uh, this metal, you know, implement that you kind of use for digging and chopping. Think about an axe. It's not an axe, but... You know think about an axe or a hammer or something like this and the buddha is using this analogy saying that each day you use this tool you don't know how much wood you've worn away on this handle just like you don't know how much fetters how much of this pollutions of mine you've worn away on a particular day but if you use that tool long enough you will get to a certain point where it's like yeah i've worn down this handle i need to replace the handle and the same thing is that when you get to the end of eliminating certain fetters, you will know that you've eliminated those fetters because you'll see how the mind functions differently without having those fetters in the mind. That When that pollution is gone, you will know, okay, it's gone. I no longer have ill will because you haven't had anger, hatred, or ill will for one year or two years. There just hasn't been any anger whatsoever arise in the mind. You'll know it's completely gone. But each day leading up to that, you won't know how much of the anger that you've eliminated. And this is where sometimes people can kind of get frustrated. They think they're not progressing because they're trying to figure out how much did I progress today? How much did I progress this week? How much did I progress this month? And you get kind of frustrated because you see anger arise. And you're like, oh, I don't want to deal with that anger. Why did it arise? I thought I was making progress. Well, you can't observe how much incremental progress you're making throughout your days and weeks and months. But once the ill will is gone, for example, you'll know that it's completely gone. So that's what the Buddha is basically saying here is that, you know, essentially he doesn't say this part, but what I'll say to you is stay focused on the goal. Stay focused on the objective. You are wearing away the ill will, for example. If you're doing loving kindness meditation and you're practicing loving kindness in daily life, You are wearing away the ill will, but you're just not going to be able to see how much in this incremental improvements, but you'll know when it's completely gone. And that's where you'll really thank yourself for having done all that work. Questions on this chapter?
2: It does not appear we have any questions at this time, sir.
1: All right. We'll go to the next chapter.
4: Yes, sir. Let's go to Jan to read chapter 36. Thank you, Miranda. The Tathagata is the one who shows the way. The Brahmin, Gunaka Moggallana, asked the perfectly enlightened one When Master Gotama's disciples are thus advised and instructed by him, do they all attain Nibbana, the ultimate goal, or do some not attain it? When Brahmin, they are thus advised and instructed by me, some of my disciples attain Nibbana, the ultimate goal, and some do not attain it. Master Gautama, since Nibbana exists and the path leading to Nibbana exists and the Master Gautama is present as the guide, what is the cause and reason why, when Master Gautama's disciples are thus advised and instructed by him, some of them attain Nibbana, the ultimate goal, and some do not attain it? As to that, Brahmin, I will ask you a question in return. Answer it as you choose. What do you think, Brahmin? Are you familiar with the road leading to Rajagaha? Yes, Master Gautama. I am familiar with the road leading to Rajagaha. What do you think, Brahmin? Suppose a man came who wanted to go to Rajagaha, and he approached you and said, Venerable sir, I want to go to Rajagaha. Show me the road to Rajagaha. Then you told him, Now, good man, this road goes to Rajagaha. Follow it for a while, and you will see a certain village. Go a little further and you will see a certain town. Go a little further and you will see Rajagaha with its lovely parks, groves, meadows and ponds. Then, having been thus advised and instructed by you, he would take a wrong road and go to the west. Then a second man came who wanted to go to Rajagaha and he approached you and said, Venerable Sir, I want to go to Rajagaha. Then you told him, now good man, this road goes to Rajagaha. Follow it for a while and you will see a certain village. Go a little further and you will see a certain town. Go a little further and you will see Rajagaha with its lovely parks, groves, meadows, and ponds. Then, having been thus advised and instructed by you, he would arrive safely in Rajagaha. Now, Brahman, since Rajagaha exists and the path leading to Rajagaha exists and you are present as the guide, what is the cause and reason why? When those men have been thus advised and instructed by you, one man takes a wrong road and goes to the west, and one arrives safely in Rajagaha. What can I do about that, Master Gautama? I am one who shows the way. So too, Brahman, nibbana exists, and the path leading to nibbana exists, and I am present as the guide. Yet when my disciples have been thus advised and instructed by me, some of them attain nibbana the ultimate goal, and some do not attain it. What can I do about that, Brahman? The Tathagata is the one who shows the way.
1: All right. Thank you, Chan. This is one of my favorite teachings of the Buddha. There's multiples, of course. But this is just showing you how skillful a enlightened being is and the Buddha is by introducing a question when somebody asks him a question. This person asked him a question like, hey, you know, essentially, you're the Buddha why don't all of your students actually attain enlightenment you know you should be able to instruct everybody to get to enlightenment if you're a buddha and the buddha uses this example of traveling to show that it's not possible for everybody to get to enlightenment through his instruction because even if the buddha instructs everybody the same then one person takes a wrong turn the other person doesn't getting to this particular town so one person's going to get to the town one person's not One person's going to get to enlightenment, another person's not. It all depends on how individuals make certain decisions during their their life and during their practice. A teacher, a Buddha, can only provide the instruction. It's up to the individual students to actually do the work to experience the progress on the path. And that's what he's explaining here. What questions do you guys have on this chapter?
2: Uh, It appears we have no questions on this chapter, sir.
1: All right. Chapter 37.
2: Cause and reason why some beings do not attain nibbana in this very life. Venerable sir, what is the cause and reason why some beings here do not attain nibbana, enlightenment in this very life? There are Lord, the heavenly beings, forms recognizable by the eye that are desirable, lovely, agreeable, pleasing, sensually enticing, tempting. If a monk seeks excitement, pleasant feelings in them, welcomes them and remains holding to them. His consciousness becomes dependent upon them and clings to them. A monk with clinging does not attain nibbana. In the case of sounds recognizable by the ear, odors recognizable by the nose, flavors recognizable by the tongue, physical objects recognizable by the body, mental objects recognizable by the mind, the disc forces are similar to that of forms recognizable by the eye. This is the cause and reason, Lord of heavenly beings, why some beings here do not attain nirvana enlightenment, in this very light.
1: All right. Thank you, Miranda. So there's various accounts uh, during the lifetime of the Buddha where he's teaching heavenly beings that, you know, he would be uh, in a certain field or, or somewhere, and these heavenly beings would come, and he would actually provide instruction because... A being in the human realm in the heavenly realm can actually attain enlightenment. So, of course, he's instructing lots of human beings, but there's also heavenly beings that seek his guidance as well. So here he's addressing this lord of the heavenly beings and explaining why people don't get to enlightenment. And what he's explaining is central desire, that fetter of central desire where the mind is longing and yearning, craving, desiring through the sense bases, clinging and holding on to forms, sounds, odors, flavors, bodily conduct, contact in the mind. This is why beings stay stuck in the cycle of rebirth and stay stuck in discontentedness. Because as long as there's central desire in the mind and you're longing and yearning through the sense bases, then by holding on with this craving and this clinging through the sense bases, the mind's going to keep getting shaken up and keep experiencing discontentedness. So he's he's showing that as one of the causes of why people don't attain enlightenment and why do they still hold on to central desire? Well, because of ignorance, what he talked about in the dependent origination is because they are unknowing that they're actually causing their own discontentedness. So as an unenlightened being who's off this path, we chase, we chase after the objects of our affection, just like a prey animal chases a prey. A predator is chasing a prey. So a a mountain lion is chasing a rabbit or a lion is chasing a gazelle just chasing and chasing and chasing. That's what's going on in the human mind is we're chasing that new pair of shoes, we're chasing more money, we're chasing a more beautiful husband or wife or a more uh, higher income or a better job or a bigger house or a newer cell phone or some clothes or something, right? The mind's just chasing, 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 thinking that this is going to fulfill our mind. This is gonna give us lasting satisfaction somehow but it never does. It just gives us temporary pleasant feelings. That's all we get. And then those ultimately are unsatisfying because eventually those temporary pleasant feelings wear off and you're right back to the painful feelings again. But we don't understand that it's central desire and this craving, yearning, and longing through the sense bases because of the ignorance and the unknowing of true reality. This is why beings don't attain enlightenment. Questions on this chapter?
2: Yes, sir. On Zoom, Unya asks, Sir, how did the Buddha know the way to communicate with each student?
1: Not sure what you mean by that question because. A Buddha is going to communicate, you know, in whatever language that they're communicating in. And then based on understanding their students, they're he's just going to share the teachings because they're the same teachings from student to student to student. But as you learn about each one of your students, you can cast the teachings based on that particular person's experience. So if I'm talking to an airplane pilot versus someone who cleans houses for a living, for example, I'm going to teach in different ways. I'm going to give different analogies that help them understand the teachings based on their profession, based on things that they already know. If I'm talking to someone who's a parent versus someone who's not a parent, I'm going to be speaking in different ways. But it's the same underlying teachings, just casting it in a certain light based on experiences that people have because one of the ways to teach somebody these teachings is to help them see the truth based on things that they already know if they already know something to be the truth and they've already seen it in the world themselves then if you just show them how these teachings are explaining that same thing then it helps them so for example the buddha teaches that these teachings to get to enlightenment it's gradual training gradual practice leads to gradual progress. So one of the analogies that I will use is like an IV, you know, the drip of an IV, because most people have been hooked up to an IV at one point in time, and they know that that slow drip is what brings and restores health back to the body from the IV. But some people haven't experienced an IV or they, they haven't really observed that about an IV. So there might be other examples that I can use in their life to help them see that. So I think that gets to the heart of your question, but I'm not sure. Feel free to ask a follow-up if you have one.
2: Yes, sir. There seems to be no other questions at this time.
1: All right. So we go to Chapter 38.
4: Yes, let's go to Jan to read Chapter 38, sir. Thank you, Miranda. No desire for the nutriment one attains enlightenment. If, monks, there is no desire for the nutriment edible food, Or for the nutriment contact, or for the nutriment of volitional formations, choices, and decisions, or for the nutriment consciousness, if there is no excitement, if there is no craving, consciousness does not become established there and come to growth. Where consciousness does not become established and come to growth, there is no development of name and form. Where there is no development of name and form, There is no growth of volitional formations, choices, decisions. Where there is no growth of volitional formations, there is no production of future renewed existence. Where there is no production of future renewed existence, there is no future birth, aging, and death. Where there is no future birth, aging, and death, I say that is without sorrow, anguish, and despair. Suppose monks, there was a house, a hall with a peaked roof, with windows on the northern, southern, and eastern sides. When the sun rises, a beam of light enters through the, a window, where would it become established? On the western wall, venerable sir. If there were no western wall, where would it become established? On the earth, venerable sir. If there were no earth, where would it become established? On the water, venerable sir. If there were no water, where would it become established? It would not become established anywhere, Venerable Sir. So too, monks, if there is no desire for the nutriment edible food, for the nutriment contact, for the nutriment of volitional formations, for the nutriment consciousness, consciousness does not become established there and come to growth. Where consciousness does not become established and come to growth, There is no development of name and form. Where there is no development of name and form, there is no growth of volitional formations. Where there is no growth of volitional formations, there is no production of future renewed existence. Where there is no production of future renewed existence, there is no future birth, aging, and death. Where there is no future birth, aging, and death, I say that is without sorrow, grief, and despair.
1: All right. Thank you, Jan. So here, along with other teachings of the Buddha, you understand that the whole reason why we experience death or sickness or aging is because we were born. As long as we're born into existence, we're going to experience sickness, aging, and death because of impermanence, the constant change of this physical body. This physical body can't be permanently healthy. It can't be permanently youthful. It can't be permanently in existence. We have to die. Everything else in life is optional, but there's one thing that's not optional, is death. Every single being has to die. It's a requirement. There's no way that you can have eternal life because this physical body is impermanent. So we're going to experience sickness, aging, and death. As long as we're born, we're going to experience these things. The goal of this path to enlightenment is to eliminate discontentedness. And to eliminate discontentedness is to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. Once you've eliminated craving, desire, attachment, then you've eliminated discontentedness, which you've also eliminated the cycle of rebirth. You're no longer going to be reborn in the cycle of rebirth. And the way that you do that is by eliminating the nutriment or this craving or this desire, this wanting. So... We might have certain craving and desire, this wanting of certain food. We might have a certain craving, desire, attachment for contact. If you feel like you're lonely and you are bored and you want this contact, that's the mind having craving, desire, attachment. You're not a bad person. You haven't done anything wrong. That's just what the mind's doing. So as you gradually train in this path, you'll see that the mind can come into its own, it can become peaceful where you're content and peaceful, even joyful when you're alone or when you're with other people. Or this craving and desire attachment for certain choices and decisions. We make certain choices in life and then we hold on to them we cling to them and we get very discontent when we don't get the objects of our affection so in order to get to enlightenment you have to let go realizing that you're going to make certain decisions but if you hold on and cling to them that's going to cause discontentedness so learning how to practice this middle way where you can make decisions but then you're not clinging to them And then the same thing is this continuation of the consciousness where you want to exist in the world. As long as you want to exist, as long as you have a craving, a desire, attachment to exist, you're going to continue to exist. You're going to continue to experience the grief, displeasure, and despair uh, because you're going to continue to experience rebirth. So it's not that you want to die, but it's not that you want to crave and long and yearn for existence, but instead you find this middle way where you practice letting go of this longing and yearning. You put out the fire of craving, desire, attachment. So what you do is you train the mind to not have this central desire so that there's not this arising of these conditioned pleasant feelings where you're chasing after the objects of your affection and you're chasing this excitement. So as long as you're chasing this excitement, then there is craving, desire, attachment in the mind. But when you observe the pleasant feelings, these conditioned pleasant feelings arising, if you cut that off and let it go, eventually you get to the point where there is no craving. And when there is no craving then the mind is enlightened and then there is no consciousness to be reborn there is no longer going to be a rebirth so you have eliminated all the causes and conditions that are causing the mind to be discontent and you've also eliminated the causes and conditions that are causing rebirth as well Uh, and that's what the buddha is explaining here and he's showing that uh, this example of this uh, beam of light coming in the house that if there's no wall there uh, for the beam of light, then it's not going to become established. If there's no earth for the beam of light to shine on, then it's not going to become established. If there's no water, then there's nowhere for this beam of light to be established. So the same thing is when there's no craving, desire, attachment in the mind, there's no way for this consciousness to continue. If you think about a fire, and if you were feeding the fire logs and there's this big bonfire and there's this spark that comes off the logs and then it goes and lights the leaves and starts a new fire that spark or that that wind that carries the spark that's the craving desire attachment that's leading to the next rebirth it's leading to the next fire that when you keep feeding this fuel to the fire and it's throwing off sparks That wind carries the spark and it lights a new fire. Now we've got a new fire. But when you put out the fire, you're no longer feeding it fuel. You stop arguing. You stop being discontent. You stop craving and yearning and longing for things. When you're no longer feeding it fuel, then this fire gets extinguished and there's no spark to light the next fire. There's no rebirth because you've now extinguished the causes and the conditions that's throwing off these sparks. So that's what this path is about, is eliminating craving, anger, and ignorance or the unknowing of true reality. Because by doing that, then there won't be the spark to light the next fire or the next light or the next life. Questions on this chapter?
2: It does not appear we have any questions at this time, sir.
1: All right, so we'll go to chapter 39.
2: Dependent origination. When this exists that comes to be, with the arising of this, that arises. When this does not exist, that does not come to be, with the elimination of this, that ceases.
1: All right. Thank you, Miranda. So this isn't the dependent origination, the full dependent origination. This is a kind of an introduction to dependent origination because the next chapter is dependent origination. This is just helping you to kind of set up what it is the Buddha is going to talk about in dependent origination, which is that cause and effect that I talked about earlier, that when this exists, that comes to be. With the arising of this, that arises. But then likewise, when this doesn't exist, that doesn't come to be with the elimination of this that ceases so you're starting to understand and get introduced to this causality this cause and effect or action and result that's what the buddha is introducing to you here as now he's getting ready to explain to you true dependent origination in its entirety any questions on this
2: uh we don't have any questions on this chapter sir
1: All right, so now we're at dependent origination. This is the highest ultimate truth of the Buddhist teachings that is going to explain to you discontentedness and why you experience discontentedness and why you keep experiencing the cycle of rebirth being born over and over again.
4: Yes, sir. Let's go to Chan to read chapter 40. Thank you, Miranda. Dependent origination as the law of nature Monks with ignorance, unknowing of true reality as condition, volitional formations, choices, decisions come to be. With volitional formations as conditions, consciousness. With consciousness as condition, name and form. With name and form as condition, the sixth sense basis. With the sixth sense basis as condition, contact. With contact as condition, feeling. With feeling as condition craving, with craving as condition clinging, with clinging as condition existence, with existence as condition birth, with birth as condition aging and death, sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, and despair come to be. Such is the cause of this whole mass of discontentedness. And what, monks, is aging in death? The aging of the various beings in the various orders of beings, they're growing old, brokenness of teeth, grayness of hair, wrinkling of skin, decline of vitality, degeneration of the sense bases. This is called aging. The passing away of the various beings from the various orders of beings. They're perishing, breakup, disappearance, mortality, death, completion of time, the breakup of the aggregates, The laying down of the carcass. This is called death. Thus, this is aging and this death are together called aging and death. With the arising of birth, there is the arising of aging and death. With the elimination of birth, there is the elimination of aging and death. Just this noble eightfold path is the way leading to the elimination of aging and death. That is right view, right intention. Right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. At what monks is birth, the birth of the various beings into the various realms of beings. Their being born, descended into the world, production, the coming together of the aggregates, the obtaining of the sense basis. This is called birth. With the arising of existence, there is the arising of birth. With the elimination of existence, there is the elimination of birth. This Noble Eightfold Path is the way leading to the elimination of birth. That is, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And what monks is existence? There are these three kinds of existence sense fear, existence, six sense bases. Form sphere existence, form realms, and formless sphere existence, formless realms. This is called existence. With the arising of clinging, there is the arising of existence. With the elimination of clinging, there is the elimination of existence. This Noble Eightfold Path is the way leading to the elimination of existence. That is, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And what monks is clinging? There are these four kinds of clinging, clinging to sensual pleasures, clinging to views, clinging to rules and vows, clinging to a notion of self. This is called clinging. With the arising of craving, there is the arising of clinging. With the elimination of craving, there is the elimination of clinging. This Noble Eightfold Path is the way leading to the elimination of clinging. That is, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And what monks is craving? There are these six classes of craving. Craving for forms, craving for sounds, craving for odors, craving for flavors, craving for physical objects, craving for mental objects this is called craving with the arising of feeling there is the arising of craving with the elimination of feeling there is the elimination of craving this noble eightfold path is the way leading to the elimination of craving that is right view right intention right speech right action right livelihood right effort right mindfulness and right concentration and what longs is feeling there are these six classes of feeling, feeling born of eye contact, feeling born of ear contact, feeling born of of nose contact, feeling born of tongue contact, feeling born of bodily contact, feeling born of mind contact. This is called feeling. With the arising of contact, there is the arising of feeling. With the elimination of contact, there is the elimination of feeling. This Noble Eightfold Path is the way leading to the elimination of feeling. That is, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And what monks is contact? There are these six classes of contact. Eye contact, ear contact, nose contact, tongue contact, body contact, mind contact. This is called contact. With the arising of the six sense bases, there is the arising of contact. With the elimination of the six sense bases, there is the elimination of contact. The noble eightfold path is the way leading to the elimination of contact. That is right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And what monks are the six sense bases? The eye base, the ear base, the nose base, the tongue base, the body base, the mind base. These are called the six sense bases. With the arising of name and form, there is the arising of the six sense bases. With the elimination of name and form, there is the elimination of the six sense bases. This Noble Eightfold Path is the way of leading to the elimination of the six sense bases that is, right view, right intention right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness and right concentration. And what monks is name and form? Feeling, perception, choices, decisions, contact, consciousness. This is called name. The four great elements and the form derive from the four great elements. This is called form. Thus this name and this form are together called name and form. With the arising of consciousness, there is the arising of name and form. With the elimination of consciousness, there is the elimination of name and form. This Noble Eightfold Path is the way leading to the elimination of name and form. That is, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And what monks is consciousness? There are these six classes of consciousness eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose consciousness, tongue consciousness, body consciousness, and mind consciousness. This is called consciousness. With the arising of volitional formations, choices, and decisions, there is the arising of consciousness. With the elimination of volitional formations, there is the elimination of consciousness. This noble eightfold path is the way leading to the elimination of consciousness. That is right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness and right concentration. And what monks are volitional formations? There are these three kinds of volitional formations, choices, decisions, the bodily volitional formation, the verbal volitional formation, the mental volitional formation. These are called the volitional formations. With the arising of ignorance, unknowing of true reality, there is the arising of volitional formations. With the elimination of ignorance, there is the elimination of volitional formations. Just this noble eightfold path is the way leading to the elimination of volitional formations. That is right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness and right concentration. When monks, a noble disciple thus understands the condition, thus understands the cause of the condition, thus understands the elimination of the condition, thus understands the way leading to the elimination of the condition, he's then called a noble disciple who is accomplished in view, who is accomplished in vision, who has arrived at these true teachings, who sees these true teachings, who possesses a trainee's wisdom, Possesses a trainee's true wisdom, who has entered the stream of the teachings, a noble one with penetrative wisdom, one who stands squarely before the door to the deathless enlightenment.
1: Thank you, Jan. All right, so really deep teaching here. I'm actually going to start here at the bottom for a moment. Is the Buddha is explaining here that one who understands dependent origination has a is accomplished in view, accomplished in vision, being able to see clearly the true teachings, being able to see the true teachings clearly, right? That you develop this wisdom, this true wisdom, and you're entering the stream of the teachings, meaning you were, he used to talk about enlightenment as the ocean, and then there was these, the stream of water that leads to the ocean, and we're like a log, you know, kind of making its way to the ocean, and this log can get hung up at any point in its journey along the stream. So if you enter into the stream of the teachings, then you're entering in to understand these teachings and investigate them, develop this true wisdom, where you get to this penetrative wisdom. And then having done so, when you get to that first stage of enlightenment, you're standing squarely and ready to attain enlightenment as you progress towards enlightenment. So it's really important to understand this dependent origination. So here, what he's done is he's explained to you in detailed form all the causes and conditions that lead to birth, that leads to aging and death, that leads to sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, despair, this whole mass of discontentedness. So if you're interested to eliminate anger and sadness and frustration and guilt and shame and fear and boredom and loneliness and all these other discontent feelings, then here he's explaining to you how to eliminate those in this life. And then having done so, you won't experience rebirth and have to do this all over again. So there are certain aspects of life that are, yes, are enjoyable. But in the unenlightened state, there's certain parts that are quite miserable about life. And oftentimes we have to experience enough of that misery that we're looking for something different. And we can figure out how to actually get to this peaceful, calm, serene, consent mind with joy, where the mind is permanently peaceful. And in order to do that, we need to cultivate this wisdom because it's the ignorance or the unknowing of true reality, which is the condition that's keeping the mind ultimately trapped in this unenlightened state. So let me explain to you through the words that I shared in this chapter. I don't usually do this, but I'm gonna read what I wrote for you to help you understand dependent origination. And then I'll open up to any questions that you guys have. In this teaching from Gautama Buddha, he shares dependent origination. Dependent origination is the ultimate description of the cause and effect relationship of how ignorance the unknowing of true reality leads to discontentedness and continued rebirth in the cycle of rebirth dependent origination is a series of 12 conditions that lead from one to another ultimately causing rebirth and continued discontentedness the elimination of ignorance the unknowing of true reality through acquiring wisdom is what leads to the elimination of discontentedness and continuous rebirth in the cycle of rebirth. Learning, reflecting, and practicing these teachings with guidance from a teacher to independently discover the truth is how a practitioner acquires wisdom. It is ignorance, the unknowing of true reality, that leads to volitional formations or choices and decisions in a previous life that are uninformed leading to unwholesomeness. Through lacking wisdom, an individual will make unwise decisions, producing harm in the world, which will then be returned to you due to the natural law of karma. Karma is cause and effect or action and result. Essentially, karma is the result of your decisions. So it is one's volitional formations or choices and decisions that lead to the results we experience in life producing a new life. Consciousness, or the mind, then comes into being through the cycle of rebirth, leading to name and form. Name and form is essentially the physical body. The consciousness and the physical body come together, forming the six sense bases. The six sense bases are the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind. These are formed within the womb, developing and maturing outside the womb. An unenlightened human being experiences agreeable and disagreeable forms, sounds, odors, flavors, physical objects, and mental objects through the six sense bases. Contact leads to feelings being produced in the mind. Feelings are results of experiences in the mind through contact with the six sense bases experiencing forms, sounds, odors, flavors, physical objects, and or mental objects. Craving, or mental longing with a strong eagerness, is produced when the mind has longing and yearning through the six sense bases for pleasant feelings, thinking this will satisfy the mind. The mind will then be interested in clinging or holding on to forms, sounds, odors, flavors, physical objects, and or mental objects to continue to experience the pleasant feelings. This leads to continued existence as craving is the fuel that causes rebirth in the cycle of rebirth. With continued existence, there is birth leading to the accumulation of the five aggregates as a new being. The five aggregates, I'm just going to pause here for a moment. The five aggregates are the physical form, feelings, perceptions, how you perceive the world, volitional formations, which are choices and decisions, and then the consciousness or the mind. So it's the five aggregates that determines whether a being is a being. So if there is existence and there's birth, then you're going to have the five aggregates. This is why a plant, while we might consider it to be alive, it's not a living being. It doesn't have the five aggregates. It has physical form, but it doesn't have feelings. It doesn't have perceptions or views and opinions about the world. It doesn't have volitional formations. It can't make choices and decisions. A tree can't uproot itself and choose to walk down the street and replant itself. And that's because it doesn't have a consciousness or a mind. So the five aggregates is how we can determine what a living being is and what it isn't. So with continued existence, there is birth leading to the accumulation of the five aggregates as a new being. When there is birth, there will be aging and death with sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, and despair in life. Dependent origination is explaining the detailed cause and effect relationship of how discontentedness of mind comes to be in the cycle of rebirth. It describes how beings continue to experience discontentedness and constant rebirth. So now I'd like to show you these little tables that I created in order to help you see this whole cycle, this whole process of what's going on. So talking about this current life, what happened is in a previous life, there was ignorance or this unknowing of true reality. And then in that previous life, you made certain choices and decisions that were unwise. And you made some wise decisions too, but you made unwise decisions or volitional formations. And you and me and all of us, we didn't have the wisdom to make wise choices. So, because of our lack of wisdom, this ignorance in these decisions leading to unwholesome things, we caused harm in the world. So, then there was continued craving. The mind continued to have craving. So, Now, you're experiencing these present effects. Because of your previous ignorance and volitional formations in a previous life, you are now experiencing this consciousness that you have in this life. This mind is what a consciousness is. And there's this physical form or this name and form. There's these six sense bases. There's this contact and feelings that you're experiencing right now in the present effects based on these past causes in previous life and then there's also present causes that are going to cause future effects this craving this clinging in this existence right now is going to create this future effect of birth aging and death and there's going to be continued discontentedness in this future life if you don't eliminate the present causes these present causes of craving clinging in existence If you don't eliminate these in this life, then there's going to be a future effect, that there's going to be continuous rebirth. So the way that you eliminate these is that you cultivate wisdom. You eliminate this ignorance, that top line. So essentially, each individual life is having all of these, having all of these various causes and conditions. We're continuing to experience all these causes and conditions because of this ignorance. The mind is trapped in this unenlightened state, because it lacks the wisdom of how to get out. It's like being trapped in a room, and you don't realize that the key is hidden in the corner. And all you've got to do is lift up the carpet, take out the key, and go put the key in the door and get out of the room. But because the mind is ignorant that the key is underneath the carpet, it just keeps running around the room, banging on the walls, banging on the windows, get me out of here, let me out of here, I'm so miserable, I'm so miserable, let me out, let me out, let me out. It just keeps banging on the walls. An enlightened being is just roaming and wandering in the cycle of rebirth, not realizing that the answer is right underneath the carpet. There's a key right there. You just have to lift the carpet back, pull out the key and go put it in the door and get out of the room. So in this cycle of rebirth as a human being, the answers are here. The wisdom is here. The Buddhist teachings are the wisdom of how to get out of this cycle of rebirth. You've just got to lift open the carpet. You've got to pull back the covers of the Gautama Buddhist teachings and start to understand this key, start to understand this wisdom so that now you can get out of this locked room that you're in. This is why we struggle. We sometimes just want to break out. We're so angry. We just want to get out of here. But you can't because you have ignorance or the annoying of true reality. It's only the wisdom that is gonna allow you to break out of this, this room. So let me see what questions you guys have on dependent origination.
2: Ah, I see. Jan. Just raised her hand. Let's
4: go to her, sorry. Thank you, Miranda. And thank you, teacher David. Um, I have a question. The the Buddha the Buddha has given us so much to think about here, so much information. And it seems in multiple places is going through these different parts, these 12 parts of dependent origination. Um, So I feel that I need to understand them, but it seems at the same time that I just need to practice the eightfold path and eliminate my ignorance. And so, I'm not sure that I'm understanding things because it seems that I need to understand these 12 different things, but I also just need to follow the Eightfold Path. So, I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit, if that seems clear.
1: Yeah, so the Eightfold Path is the core and central teaching that everything else plugs into. And yes, that's what you need to learn and practice in detail. But what this is going to do is this is going to inform you of what you're really trying to accomplish on this path. You're really trying to acquire wisdom because if you understand dependent origination and you see the truth in it, then you understand that the way to unravel this is to cultivate wisdom. Cultivate wisdom about what? The full path, (laughs) right? And then if you understand this uh, dependent origination, then you understand that it's your choices and decisions that are leading to the unwholesome results. So that tells us that we need to make wise decisions about everything that we do. We need to slow the mind down. We need to take our time. We need to not only cultivate this wisdom, but we need to arise this wisdom and practice it through our decision-making in every aspect of our life. And then when you understand that, then you understand that, okay, this mind that you now have here, you need to purify this mind and work on this mind and purifying it, being aware of the mind, training this mind, being diligent and dedicated and disciplined to train this mind. Because if you don't, it's going to lead to another physical body. It's going to lead to more rebirth. And then you understand that it's the sense bases, that it's the mind longing, yearning through these sense bases that it continues this craving, desire, attachment. And then you understand that it's contact through these sense bases that are arising feelings. And that's where these discontent feelings are coming from. So now in a situation where you know that it's contact that's arising these feelings, then in a situation where maybe you and a neighbor or you and your partner or you and a coworker are now having contact and you see that there's an argument that's arising, you realize that I can break contact here and that's going to dissipate the feelings. So now instead of staying in the argument and staying in the fight because of the ego and I want to fight and I want to duke this out. You know that this is just going to lead to unwholesome results. Why continue to do this to ourselves? This is like hitting your head ups, up against the wall, you know, just continuing to hit our head up against the wall. So you might politely say, you know, Barbara, I really respect your opinion and your interest to share that with me. But I think it's best if we just step away for a bit and let's, you know, kind of pick this conversation up another time. And that might be what you choose to do as a wise choice. Right where before when we had ignorance, we just sat there and kept arguing and arguing and arguing because we wanted to prove that we were right and they're wrong, right? Because we had this ignorance. So then our volitional formations were based in this ignorance. So when you start understanding this dependent origination, now you can start making different choices in your life about how you interact in the world. And you realize that it's Elimination of this craving that you would like to eliminate, this craving, this yearning and longing, because craving is right in the middle of dependent origination. That's what's kind of like almost holding all of this together and precipitating this is this craving and this clinging, which is leading to existence and birth and aging and death. So by understanding dependent origination, it kind of informs your practice to now Yes, focus on the Eightfold Path. That's what you've got to focus on. But there are certain pieces that you can glean from dependent origination that help you to make better decisions about how you conduct yourself in a day-to-day basis, that you guard these six sense bases, that you understand that mindfulness, you need to have this awareness of mind, of how the mind's going to long and yearn through these sense bases. And you've got to restrain that. And in some cases, you might not have certain contact like say you know that you're having craving desire attachment for chocolate cake and you're just yearning and longing for chocolate cake it probably doesn't make sense to walk into the bakery or if you're trying to eliminate your craving for coffee and you're trying to let go of caffeine it doesn't make sense to go into the coffee shop and get a glass of water Right? You might decide to go to 7-Eleven or the convenience store and get your, your water or somewhere else. Right, So you've got to realize where you're at with the mind and that you're working on certain elimination of certain things. And if you understand that it's the sixth sense spaces, then you're going to maybe make different decisions about putting the mind in a situation where it can be susceptible to something like the smell of coffee and now you want to have coffee. or Let's use something more significant. If you're trying to get away from drugs and alcohol, and you know that every time you're around certain friends, you tend to indulge in drugs and alcohol. Well, the way to get away from that is to eliminate contact. Not that they're bad people, not that you're judging them, not that you're turning your back on them, but in showing loving kindness and compassion for this being. That you are right now if you continue to have contact with these same people you're going to continue to make the choice potentially to now indulge in these drugs and alcohol so it's only when you understand dependent origination and this whole sequence of events that now you can start making better decisions in your life which ultimately lead to improved volitional formations based on wisdom because when you are ignorant of dependent origination then you're not going to be making as wiser choices anymore.
4: Thank you, teacher David. Could I ask a follow-up question? Um, I'm curious about something I think we touched on in a previous class, where we talked about um, conscious mind and then maybe um, unconscious things that we do. You mentioned, you know, sometimes we, we do something or think something and then we think, why did I do that or why did I say that? And so I'm curious about how can we become more conscious of things that are in our unconscious mind?
1: Sure, so by learning and practicing the Eightfold Path and developing that very closely, the mind moves into the jhanas or those preliminary phases that the mind experiences prior to getting to the first stage of enlightenment. And when the mind's in the jhanas, There's this oneness of mind or this unification of the mind where there's no longer a subconscious mind. That's not permanent. So, in the unenlightened state, particularly when you're off the path and when you're not, even when you're on the path, but you're not in the jhanas, yeah, there's this subconscious mind that is motivating unskillful conduct because the subconscious mind is still polluted. But by the time you train in the Eightfold Path and all those teachings, then you get to the jhanas and there's unification of mind or oneness of mind where there's no longer a subconscious. And that's how to ultimately fix that problem is just to eliminate the subconscious mind.
4: Thank you, teacher David. Mm -hmm.
1: You're welcome.
2: Um, Yes, sir. Uh, Bunya did have a follow-up question. Um, They say, I'm grateful and respectful about the way he taught his students and the different ways his technique was individually uh, for each each student. Did he know that each student had a different level of understanding or insight into his teachings?
1: Yes, definitely, because each student who comes to the path... They're going to have different degrees of pollution of mind, and they're going to have different levels of understanding based on their past and based on what they've experienced. This is all impermanence. Not every student is starting at the exact same spot when they come into the path. So one of the things that a Buddha is doing is they're observing the qualities of their student's mind, and we do that through observing their conduct and the way they interact in the world, but also through the questions that somebody asks. We understand as a teacher what a student currently understands based on the types of questions that they ask. So this is why it's utterly important, or one of the reasons why it's utterly important for students to ask questions, because a teacher understand their students better through the questions that they ask and then based on the questions they ask we provide teachings to help them but because of the universal truth of impermanence every student is going to be at different places on the path to enlightenment when they first join and become into the path and as they're progressing they're going to progress at different paces so a buddha would already understand this and take that into account as they're instructing a particular student. This is also why you can't guarantee a student that they're gonna get to enlightenment, is because their pollution of mind is different from student to student, and their capability to learn and understand the teachings is different from student to student. A Buddha can observe that a particular student is going to get to enlightenment, but they can't guarantee that it's gonna happen because it also comes down to your own dedication, your own diligence, your own effort that you put into learning and practicing the path. So that's why that one chapter we studied this week is the Buddha's pointing the way. The Buddha is showing the way to enlightenment. Their mind's already enlightened. They already are experiencing that enlightened mental state. They've done it for themselves. That's why they have deep wisdom around the teachings. And they're just pointing the way and showing you how to do it. But each person has to do the work themselves. And each person's starting at different places. And that's why the teachings are the same, but the way that a Buddha might explain it in a personal discussion with somebody will be slightly different from person to person, but it's the same underlying teaching. Yes, thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. You're welcome.
2: It does not appear we have any more questions at this time, sir.
1: All right. Well, I will just thank you all for joining for today's class. I feel that this has been a really good class to really dive into some of these teachings and Not doing the meditation today, I think, was a good choice because it allowed us to spend more time really soaking into each one of these teachings individually. So thank you all for joining. Thank you for your continued learning and practice to understand the teachings and actually practice them in daily life. Coming up tomorrow in our group learning program miranda is going to be sharing the five precepts and if you would like to learn you would need to come into zoom because we're not going to live stream that i'm going to be traveling to america tomorrow otherwise i would be teaching that class but this is a great chance for miranda to teach and for you guys to learn from another teacher where you can now understand the five precepts in. That's a key, important understanding that you would need in order to progress to enlightenment. So be sure to come into Zoom if you would like to learn the five precepts tomorrow. Then on Wednesday, Bassem is going to be teaching the third class of the four-part series on Buddhist chanting. On Wednesdays during the time that I'm traveling, Bassem and Miranda are going to be teaching those classes. So there's going to be chanting. There's also going to be breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation that they're going to be teaching. I'm still going to be teaching Saturday and Sundays, except for tomorrow. Miranda's going to be teaching that one because I'm going to be in the airport in Bangkok while you guys are having class. But all the other Saturdays and Sundays, I've arranged my travel schedule that barring any impermanence, I should be able to be online and actually teaching you guys just like I normally teach you. Uh, The Polycanon and English study group on Saturdays in the group learning program on Sundays. And it'll be at exactly the same time as we always have. So thank you for joining. I appreciate your dedication and diligence to learning and practicing. I will see you in a future class or perhaps in our retreat in America. This Saturday coming up, we're going to be in the next portion of our book, which is volume 10. We're going to be in chapters 41 through 46. We're going to be finishing volume 10 next week. So enjoy your reading. I'll see you potentially as I travel in the U.S. or in Egypt as I'm moving around the world in the next six weeks. And in the meantime, have a very lovely and wonderful rest of your day. We'll see you next time. Sawadika.
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast.